Well, we're back in Isaiah um, sermon series titled Isaiah, Salvation is of the Lord. And again, we're going to go through a really long section, uh, chapters 46 and 47, but rest assured, I'm not going to read it all at the beginning. In fact, I'm only going to read a few verses as we move through it. Um, it would be good, though, if you grab your Bible. Um, if you don't have one, there's a pew Bible there. And we'll be on page 607. That's where we're starting, 607, Isaiah 46, chapter 46, verse 1. Let me begin in prayer. Father, oh, how we are dependent upon you for everything, uh, not just earthly food, but heavenly food as well, such as your scriptures before us right now. We'd be foolish to think that we can understand them and bring them into our lives apart from a work of your spirit, apart from the work of Christ in our lives. And so we plead now, give us life in this hour to understand who you are, who we are, and how your grace comes to us afresh each day. We pray, amen. There's a special place in the cells of your body where oxygen is supposed to sit. It's like a little slot, chemically speaking. It's, it's shaped just perfectly to hold an atom of oxygen. The problem is carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide rather, is shaped almost identically to oxygen so that it also fits perfectly in that slot where only oxygen is supposed to go. And when it starts to go there in mass quantities, you're your body starts to suffocate. However, you don't even realize this is happening. You, you think you're just fine. After all, you're breathing and your lungs are expanding and contracting and you feel the air coming in and going out. Your body is going through all the motions it should be going through. All systems are normal, right? No, you're actually being asphyxiated. You're suffocating, even though you don't know it. This is uh, precisely the effect of idols in our lives. You think you're breathing in something good, but it's harming you slowly over time. It's taken your life, eventually. And so this is why Isaiah has lingered over idols for so many chapters. And if you've glanced at our sermon text, you're going to know that, yep, today he's talking about idols. And maybe you're thinking, why are we about to talk about idols again? Well, one, because Isaiah does. We're going through his book. And two, idols truly are our biggest problem. Hence, our sermon title, Not Done With Idols, Until Done With Idols. See, Isaiah doesn't want us to move on until we understand that idols are basic to our everyday lives. And we are so oblivious to false gods that we tend to cling to. We often don't see them or even know of any other way to live here on earth. Now, no one here today in the Western world spends money on physical idols of gold and silver that represent some deity, and then they bow towards that in the hopes of a good life. No. 
And so most Americans, if you were to ask them, they would say they don't have any idols. No God with a small g is the object of my affection. But remember this, any, listen, any good thing that your heart goes after, if you prefer it over God, then it is an idol. And by the way, Christians do this. Understand this also. Idols are typically good things. Look at verse 6 in chapter 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. Gold and silver are beautiful elements created by God. God specified that his tabernacle and his temple were to have lots of gold and silver in them. And listen, make make sense of this important truth. An, An idol is not some hideous monstrosity that's repugnant to our eyes. No, idols are good things that God has given to his creatures. But we elevate them above God and we look for them to save us. And listen, especially uh, young people here today, possessions are not evil. But if you find more happiness in your clothes or phones than in God who gives you life, then you have an idol. If you're so devoted to having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not bad things, but to have them to make you happy or to feel somehow complete, to take away that anxiety you feel, then you made relationships into an idol. And listen, think this through. Your happiness will go up and down based upon how well things are doing in your relationship, right? Which means what? That the idol of relationship owns you, not the other way around. But listen, too. God is not against relationships. God is pro-relationships. And here's what you need to come to understand so that your relationships will be a joy and so that you will not be enslaved by them. Everybody, listen, God is pro-happiness for you. God is not a killjoy. No, God wants you to enjoy work and relationships and possessions and food and sex. God is pro all these things. But when we take the good things of God and enjoy them apart from God, They end up hurting us and harming us. So then let us love God first and foremost. Find your happiness in him, and then he will make your hearts happy. Does that make sense? So Isaiah wants us to think about all of this until we see with a new clarity that that the salvation that God offers us is our only hope. That's the main theme here of our long text, that the salvation God offers is our only hope. Therefore, let us be done with our idol. We're going to divide our time under two headings this morning. First, the failure of idols, and then the collapse of culture. First, the failure of idols versus the success of God. The big idea here is that Isaiah wants us to see how idols utterly fail us, so that he can then shine the light of the success of God in saving us. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 46, Isaiah shows us the failure of false gods. He mentions two by name in verses 1 and 2. 
Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. All right, first question. Who are Bel and Nebo? Well, Bel is the patron god of Babylon. He's the god of all the gods there. And Nebo, not Nemo, uh, was his eldest son. He was the secretary of the council of gods. And he was the custodian of the tablet of destiny. These gods were the pride of Babylon and cause for their rejoicing. Babylon at that time was the lead culture in all the world. It, it had wonderful architecture and music and trade and uh, accomplishments that were the envy of the world. In every New Year festival, uh, the images of Bel and Nebo, um, they were put on giant beasts and they were carried around the city, leading in triumph. Now Isaiah looks at this same Procession, But what does he see? Not Bel and Nebo leading in triumph. He sees the weight of these idols wearying the poor pack animals. They have to lug these giant idols through the city. They're weighing them down. Listen, idols weary the creatures that carry them, including us. Isaiah is able to see what the people in Babylon fail to see. What is it? I like what Ray Orland Jr. writes. He says, listen, if a God has to be carried, how can it carry you? If a God cannot help itself, how can it help you? If God needs your strength, how can it strengthen you? The word Isaiah uses for idols in verse 1 relates to the Old Testament word for, for pain and hurt and strain. Idols promise everything, but they take everything from us and leave us fatally wounded in their trail of pain and hurt and destruction. And so think this through. Why did the Babylonian culture collapse? The answer isn't simply that, well, that's just what all civilizations do. They rise and they fall. No, God didn't mean for this to be. God meant for humans to create wonderful, beautiful culture <clears throat> full of meaning and significance, things that, culture that would last forever. And that's what uh, God meant when he told Adam and Eve to go into the world, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What a calling. God is saying, bear my image and create great culture, societies that, that reflect my glory. But of course, Adam fell. And interestingly, though, mankind continued to pursue culture, but not for God's glory, but for man's own glory. The quintessential example of this is what? The, the Tower of Babel. So why do all human societies fail? It's because our idols fail us, right? I mean, pretty much nobody remembers Bell and Nebo today, right? But also think of this. Over the last 2,000 years, many societies have risen only to fall. But at the same time, the name of Jesus and his kingdom 
are adored more and more throughout the world. All this is meant to help us see that the cultures and society all over the world fail because they too bow to false gods. So Isaiah wants the people of God to see how pathetic any false god is. And then he turns his attention to God. He, he shows us the, us the weight of the idols is a burden, but, but God will save and carry his people. Verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even in your old age I am he. And to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Do not look to idols. You have to carry them. They will be a burden. They will beat you up. But look, I will carry you and care for you. That's what God is saying. God is saying, you have been his responsibility from long before you were even born. And he is committed to caring for you and carrying you all the days of your life. Listen, here is the key to receiving this truth with transforming joy. What is it? Humility. God is saying, listen, you will always be a helpless, needy child to me, but I'm okay with it. Question is, are you okay with it? See, it's when you humble yourself and admit that you're nothing and can be nothing apart from God's good work in you, then you make yourself available for God to carry you and to save you but if there's one ounce of pride in you, you will say, no thanks, I, I mean, I really don't need that much help, at least not right now. Maybe someday, but for now, I'm okay, God, thank you. And so in the next verse, God wants us to evaluate our priorities in light of the gospel. Verse five. <clears throat> to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? You and I do comparisons all the time, right? Like, I like Burger King more than McDonald's, you know? Uh, I'll take Steph Curry over LeBron any day, right? Now, with regards to how we live our lives, God is asking us to compare what we cling to to him. For instance, what is the comfort of the gospel compared with the false comfort of pornography? Or what is your satis satisfaction worth compared with your constant attention upon your physical beauty? And this one hits close to home with regards to our missions conference last week. What is the evangelism of the East End worth compared with your comfort and financial success? God is asking through Isaiah, what is the creator of the universe worth to me compared to things in creation? Listen, the application to all of us here, this pastor included, is to take serious God's call to be done 
with our idols once and for all so that we can fully attach ourselves to the Lord. God calls us to compare all the happiness apart from him that this world offers us. He wants us to see how things in creation were never meant to give us the happiness only the creator can give us. When we pursue happiness in created things, it's like carbon monoxide to our soul. Now, in the rest of chapter 46, God once again shows us how absurd the contrast between the things in creation that we attach ourselves to and to the absolute goodness of God's salvation. I'm not going to read these texts. We're going to skip over them. We're just going to read God's gracious conclusion in verses 12 and 13, for it displays his success over our sin. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. A couple important things to think through. Did you pick up on God's relentless grace towards his people? I hope you did. Though we are far from righteous, God will give us more and more of what we need, his grace. <laughs> to you who are far from righteousness, I will bring my righteousness near, says the Lord. I will put salvation in Zion for my own glory. And second, do you see how patient God is with us? Yes. So let his grace embrace you now. Don't do what Christians often do when we're confronted with our idols and we kind of feel a little bit of shame. We stand back at a distance thinking God wants me to feel bad for some unspecified length of time before it's okay to return to him. Did you ever feel that way? I know I do. No, God's desire is to come near to your stubborn Christian heart and save you right now. Well, you say, I'm already saved. <clears throat> I get it. I'm already saved too. But think this through. God's salvation has a past and a present and a future reality to it. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen, the process of salvation is ongoing so that it is a present reality as much as it is a past reality. And so listen, it is good and right for us as Christians to cry out, God, save me now from all my idolatry. The more mature you are as a Christian, the more that cry, that prayer will be yours. And listen, as we just read in verse 12, Though our lives are far from righteousness, God's righteousness and salvation are not far off. My salvation will not delay, says our God. What a promise to embrace and experience. So that's the failure of idols versus the success of God. Now for the collapse of culture. The big idea here is this. In the collapse of that ancient idolatrous city, uh, nation of Babylon, 
we see a foreshadowing of a greater collapse of all idolatrous cultures when God's final judgment comes upon this world. Verse 47, verse, uh, chapter 47, 1 through 4. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. When Isaiah says the virgin daughter of Babylon, he isn't referring to an individual, but, but the whole city personified as a sinful woman. He describes a city that has lived a pampered, self-indulgent life, but it's going to come to a rightful end. As we've already covered in previous sermons, remember, King Cyrus of Persia will trample Babylon as a sign of God's judgment. And so in the Bible, listen, Babylon is like code language for all of the fallen, godless culture throughout the history of the world. Earlier, Corey read from the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation, there where it speaks fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. He's not talking about that ancient city. It's, the, it's Babylon of this world from, from the days of creation till now. There's a final reckoning that God will bring to this earth one day. I like what Ray Orland Jr. writes. He says, the judgment of God is not theoretical. It is before our eyes. The final reckoning will be as real as the history you and I are experiencing right now. And God will spare no one. Babylon is doomed. But listen, Isaiah speaks of another city to which you can belong, and I hope you do. Earlier we read in 46, verse 13, God says, I will put my salvation in Zion. Just as Babylon is code language for all the fallen culture throughout the world, so to Zion or the new Jerusalem is code language for the eternal city of God. And like the Passover of God given to his ancient people, so to that Zion to come points to the Passover lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 4, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Our Redeemer saves us, not just from our sin, but from the rightful judgment of God upon this idolatrous world. In New Testament terms, God's holy wrath fell on Jesus. Our sin went on him. He was our substitute as he hung on the cross. And if we take refuge in him now, then for, that, for us, that, that final day of judgment is already over. And the sentence of being declared righteous is already pronounced upon us. So actually, salvation is past and present and a future reality. What does this tell you, Christian? It tells you that God has more and more grace to come for you. 
God is not yet done saving you. And, and God is not yet done saving others. Until that day of judgment comes, we get to call others away from bowing to things in creation so they may bow with joy before their loving creator. But sadly, much of the world will not listen and the people of God, us, will endure much ridicule and scorn until that day. Isaiah describes the denial of the reality of God in verses 8 through 12. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall, I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Pride causes billions of people to live in denial of God and of the frailty of life. Then Isaiah speaks of the fall that follows pride. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And then in a mocking, sarcastic voice we hear, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Yeah, right, good luck. Twice in verse 8 and 10, we read, I am and there is no one besides me. This is the prideful boast of billions who have lived on earth. Well, maybe not in those exact words. Huh? Perhaps more in words like this. Uh, I think, therefore I am. Or eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. Or the modern day equivalent, YOLO. Or I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Or Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. We think ourselves wise when we say, I am, and there is none besides me. But God says in verse 10, your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am. And there is none beside me. You know, one of the greatest idols we can bow before is the idol of intellect. To fill one's head with learning after learning so as to think you've got it all figured out. I remember how arrogant I was as an atheist in my 20s. You should have seen me. I swore there was no God. I am, and there is no one besides me. 
I now look back on me with embarrassment and compassion. Embarrassed by my tiny 20-year-old brain and how so self-assured it was. And compassion, because unless God gives you understanding, we all live in the dark with regards to the big thing in life. The last verse, gosh, we got to the end of 28 verses pretty quick. Verse four, chapter 47, verse 15. It summarizes both our ignorance apart from God and our despair. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to see. This highlights a scary reality. Every human being, listen, is looking for someone or something to save him or her. People rarely admit it, but they want to be saved. The aging woman who laments her fading beauty and how it once felt like salvation. The aging businessman who laments his days are over for experiencing that thrill of running a company and how it once felt like salvation. The empty nesters who missed the days when the kids were around and how it once just felt like salvation. I can go on and on. My point is everybody is looking for salvation. That experience in life where everything is coming together in such a way that you wish it would never end. Isaiah says this is how people labor and do their business on earth. How we wander about each to their own direction. And the word we need to hear is there is no one to save you. That is, there's nothing on earth to save you as you hunt and seek meaning and happiness apart from God. There is nothing. C.S. Lewis picks up on this in his famous quote. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This morning, Isaiah has once again peeled back the layers of our lives to expose a haunting reality, our tendency to love created things instead of our creator. Our tendency is to take the good things of creation and elevate them to savior status. He has shown us the failure of idols versus the success of God to save us. And that the allure of false gods, it doesn't just capture individuals, but it captures whole societies at large. And so hopefully we all come to the point where we want to admit our sermon title we're not done with idols until we're done with idols. But then there's one question lingering in the air. How is it that we're to lay aside our idols once and for all? 
See, it's not just enough to say, I agree that idols harm me, and then try your best not to be attracted anymore <laughs> to whatever you're so attracted to. No, something powerful needs to take place in your life. Thomas Chalmers, over 200 years ago, wrote a tremendous book that helps to explain how the gospel alone is able to help us to be done with our idols. The book is titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Chalmers' point is that in his book is that it's never enough to agree that idols are worthless and then say, I will no longer be subject to idols. It's impossible to be done with idols in this way. For if you strike down one idol, it creates a vacuum into which a new idol gets sucked into your life. Can you picture that? So there must be a new affection, a love and delight for God that must press into you so thoroughly that all your idols are expelled. Hence, Chalmers titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Christian, the more you delight in God and see him as your true source of life and happiness, then the more the idols of your life will be pressed out of you. This is the only way. And did you know, this is how doctors treat someone with carbon monoxide poisoning. They place an oxygen mask over your mouth and they deliver 100% pure oxygen for five or six hours. And it presses the carbon monoxide out of you. In a similar way, when we breathe in the deep love and grace and hope of God, it presses out all God substitutes in our lives. Does this make sense? In his book, Chalmer points to Jesus' words in Matthew 13, verse 44. There Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field to which a man found and covered up. Then with all his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Listen, only Christ and his kingdom flowing through your body like 100% pure oxygen can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Only Jesus can say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No idol on earth can give you what Jesus promises you, complete rest. Let me ask you, are you anxious? Do you worry? Do you find you can't sleep at night? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My friends, as we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment, let us delight in the welcome and the embrace of our Creator. May Isaiah's words humble us. May we despise any God substitute in our lives right now. But let us not just despise our idolatrous urges. Let us love Christ, our Savior, 
and come to him afresh and experience him and his rest. May he fill us with all happiness. May we find in him the answer to all life's longings. May we see in the cross how much Christ loves us, and may we respond with great love for him. Let's pray. Father, I feel like I need to preach this sermon to myself every hour of every day. So insidious are the things of this world, and so tempted am I, and so tempted are us to bow down to nice things, good things that you give us, but we elevate them over you. Help us to get things right, just in this hour. We thank you that you remind us that that your righteousness is right there for us. You are nearby, always ready to forgive. Your salvation isn't just past or present, but it's also future. May we find comfort in that, we pray. Amen.